0: The 930 Club.
1: Oh, that's where I had laryngitis and I had to have a a doctor shoot me up with prednisone in the ass (laughs) right before I played. Yes. That's pretty spinal tap. (laughs) That's the only time I felt like, oh my God, there's a doctor with a needle and he's asked me to pull down my pants. This feels very rock and roll.
2: Hello, Cleveland! Turn your speakers up to 11 because it's time for Too Much Epping Perspective, the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets weird. I'm your host, Alan Keller, a comedy writer in LA and former lead singer of the least heralded Chicago band, The Falling Walendas.
0: And I'm your co host, Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for PJ Harvey. And former lead singer of the least heralded Milwaukee band, The Vainglorious.
2: Our guests today are Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein from the group Rock Critic Grill Markets called The Best Band in America, Slater Kinney.
0: We're going to talk to Carrie and Corin about whether it's better to get electrocuted than to cover your mic with someone's smelly sock, who stunk them out of their dressing room at Colorado's legendary Red Rocks Amphitheater, and how on the road, glamour and squalor are never far apart.
2: So without further ado, let's go to the T.M.E.P. show.
3: It really puts perspective on things, it doesn't it? Not anyway. too much.
2: There's too much
3: think, perspective now.
2: Alex, in our conversation with Slater Kinney, Kerry Brownstein said something that should be carved into a chunk of granite or at least a piece of drywall and placed in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What quote would that be, Alan? She said, Glamour and Squalor sit side by side on tour. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. I mean, the amount of crap a band has to put up with for that 45 minutes or so of glory on stage is daunting. Unless you're a major headlining act with an army of managers, roadies, and assistants, running interference on all fronts, the obstacles to playing a gig can really make you reconsider that accounting degree your parents hope you'd get in the first place. I'm just going to bring up a typical gig for the Falling Melendez. I think it was Fargo, North Dakota, which right there says something about the direction of our career. Big music town. Is it really? Yeah. I remember we had to turn our amps up so that you could hear us over all the fracking. But anyways, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm sporting some pretty tight pants. Let me just say how tight they were. They were so tight, I couldn't fit underwear underneath them, let alone a cucumber wrapped in tinfoil. <laughs> anyway, before the gig... I was hanging a backdrop and suddenly my pants split wide open from ankle to ass. They were flapping around like one of those, um, you know, those air dancers outside a car dealership. So in order to avoid a public indecency charge, I had to have my guitar tech kneel behind me for the entire set and hold my pants together so I wouldn't shift the focus from my Les Paul to my less Balls. Mm, yikes. That was as close to becoming a human centipede as I ever want to get.
0: Yeah. I mean, they, they talk about things that you can't unsee. That's kind of a visual that I can't unthink now that you've brought it up, Alan. Thanks for that. <laughs> wardrobe malfunctions are are an example of the squalor on the road. I think that's right. I think another one is accommodations, hotels, motels. Right. In fact, didn't Frank Zappa have a film called 200 Motels? I don't know, but I think he carried a pillow with him wherever he traveled. <laughs> Smart. In some places, you want to bring your own bedding. But in any case, I was in Asbury Park, New Jersey with the Bodines. They're going to play at the legendary Stone Pony, which was made famous by Bruce Springsteen. And Asbury Park at that time, this was the mid-90s, was like a neutron bomb went off. Once upon a time, it was a really thriving resort town. It had a boardwalk. It had Coney Island type of setting. But at that point, it was virtually abandoned. It was a little bit scary, but the Stone Pony was sitting right there. And About three blocks down the street was a hotel called the Berkeley Carteret Hotel. Fancy. Yeah, it sounded very fancy. And so we pulled up and got out to check in. And we came to the front entrance and it was blocked off. There was a sign, enter this way. And we had to go through a side door, like almost like an emergency exit, to go to the front desk and check in. And it turned out that as we looked around, like none of the room doors had doorknobs. And there was something very strange going on there. What it turned out was this hotel was owned by the Maharishi, which at that time owned multiple hotels around the country. And the belief system there was that entering a building from, let's say, the south side was bad luck. So they closed off the main
2: entrance because it faced south. Is that why they called him Southside Johnny?
0: Yeah, well, Southside Johnny was a stone pony regular as well. But there's all this weird stuff going on, and you're kind of in this environment that just feels very unsettling. And you're trying to relax before the show, but you're kind of getting the heebie-jeebies. So I think that it's just, it's another example. There are a lot of ways that Squalor works its way into the experience before bands get the glamour of jumping on stage and playing for their fans.
2: You know, the Doors Without Doorknobs brings back a memory of mine from childhood. My sister was kind of a rebel and she would lock herself in the bathroom. And so my father took the doorknob off our bathroom. For three years until she graduated high school, we didn't have a doorknob in our bathroom. Wow. You really
0: put the effing in family of that story. <laughs> Let's get to our conversation with Carrie and Corin from Slater-Kinney. But first, a short break. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from NoFX and Ian McKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.
4: Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious podcast. Here, we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious podcast.
2: now our discussion with the band that is more animated in real life than they were on Bob's Burgers, Slater Kinney. Carrie, I just wanted to tell you that I saw a film the other night called The Nowhere In that you wrote and directed and co-starred with Annie Clark, also known as St. Vincent. And I thought, wow, here we're doing a podcast with you about a mockumentary. This is Spinal Tap, and you just made a mockumentary. Is that a good way to characterize it?
1: it defies categorization in some ways but i think mockumentary or meta-mockumentary or some kind of hybrid psychotic docu-style movie is is the best i can do but it it definitely it's a weird film and um of course i think anyone making something about music that is also satirical and is kind of skewering life on the road is always paying homage to spinal tap Rewatching it in advance of this interview, I was like, oh, so many references <laughs> have just embedded themselves in, in our culture. The provenance was Spinal Tap, whether you know it or not.
2: Well, you know, the opening scene of the movie is the inversion of the limo scene in Spinal Tap, where they close the partition on the chauffeur, Bruno Kirby. In this one, Annie Clark gets the partition closed on her.
1: Yeah, it is the inversion of that, and it's the bad omen for her, as it was probably a bad (laughs) omen for Bruno Kirby. But actually, he probably did fine. The rest of the band went—it actually went bad for that band, too, so who knows?
2: Well, Bruno Kirby died, so I guess maybe it was a really bad omen.
1: That's true. Okay,
2: on that cheerful note, um, let's get down to brass tacks. What are your favorite scenes in This Is
5: Spinal Tap? My favorite scene is definitely the party scene. And I love that it starts out with Fran Drescher and she's just looking gorgeous. But the band is all like, who is this? What? What's happening? You know, like they're so clueless. They don't even know who this is. She's just like smoking and glamorous, like, oh, boys, come over. You know, and it's just it's so clubby. And I, there's so much going on in the party scene that I absolutely love.
2: Have you had Bobby Fleckman's in your music career?
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. She's actually cool, right? She's actually smart and funny. I mean, she reminds me a little of Megan Jasper at Sub Pop, right? Mm -hmm. You know, just like this woman that's fully in charge. She's also from the East Coast. She's got a bit of an accent. She's very outgoing. And (laughs) she just, you know, she's great. I love her. She's probably my favorite character in the movie.
2: There's so much going on in that scene. Isn't it the cold sore scene too? Yes. (laughs) Yes. That
5: that part is just so so random
2: where you look up and you're like, wait, what? I guess originally they actually had the instance where they both contracted herpes, but they ended up taking that out and just making it a sight gag, which
5: is so great. Yeah. I think that's actually better.
2: Carrie,
0: I want to ask you, what is your favorite scene in This Is Final Tap and Why?
1: I really like the scene at Elvis Presley's grave. It's so abject. And I don't know, it's just kind of this like quiet, weird scene. But I feel like it's very relatable. Like they're trying to make this profound moment out of something and they know the cameras are there and they're going to harmonize. They're paying homage to one of their heroes, one of these like musical legends, and they're just failing. And (laughs) I think I appreciate like the introspection in that moment and just, it's pretty grounded scene actually compared to a lot of the movie, but it feels like a distillation of everything that's, that's going wrong for them. Um, so yeah, I, I like that one.
2: Well, that's a too much fucking perspective scene. Yeah. It's like our title track. Have you been to Graceland?
1: I have. Yeah. I think we went on tour. You have to. You have to go. It's obligatory. What's it called? The Safari Room or
2: the Cheetah Room? What is that The Jungle Room. Oh, the Jungle Room. I knew it was uh, some Marlon Perkins special in there. There's a pretty little thing waiting for the
0: king down in the Jungle Room.
1: See, you're doing the same thing. We're like, you're you're starting to sing, and then if we all tried to harmonize, we'd be in the exact (laughs) same Who would want to go raga? (laughs) Don't want to go raga. I
0: don't even know what the hell raga is. That's how non-intellectually curious I am. I've never actually looked up raga.
2: It's a pronunciation of reggae,
5: isn't it?
0: (laughs) I don't know. Could be. Could be
5: something else.
0: I was once on tour with this little band out of the UK called Balloon. And as we were driving through Memphis... We stopped at Graceland, and being relatively new to the music business myself, I thought, well, Elvis was on RCA Records. These guys are on RCA Records. Surely they'll embrace us and just let us pull the van right up in front of Graceland to take a photo. (laughs) So we tried to convince them that that was the right thing to do, but um, I got shut down on that one. Anyway, (laughs) you guys were just on tour with Wilco, and there's a couple of headlines that I found in looking at things, and I just want to throw these out there, and then I want to hear what some of the great experiences that you both want to share with us. Kansas City Magazine said, KC COVID fallout. Wilco and Slater-Kenny's show moved from Midland to Grinders after Garth Brooks fiasco.
1: I don't don't even know what the Garth Brooks fiasco was, except I guess his tour was shut down because of COVID.
2: There was the Jimi Hendrix experience, and now I guess the Garth Brooks fiasco.
0: I mean, I don't know. Something about Midlands sounds like something, you know, but Grinders. I mean, that could be a strip club. I mean, who knows? But, you know, but um, the, uh, Kansas City Pitch says, Slater Kinney at Grinders KC on August 12th, 2021 amid a hellstorm. <laughs> and then jambands.com said, uh, Wilco and Slater Kinney play a shot in the arm to resume rainy Forest Hills show. Yeah. And lastly, the Boston Globe, Slater, Kenny, Wilco, Bring the Heat. So there's a lot of meteorological references in these headlines. So (laughs) tell us about it.
1: It was definitely a weather-heavy tour. I feel like the weather was our proverbial band member. Grinders is a sub shop, right? It is kind of some kind of... I think it's like a sandwich barbecue
5: situation. It's really like a giant wood pit. Like you're playing like
1: an outdoor pit,
5: basically, that's filled with wood chips.
1: Wilco got, they got rained out of that show. They didn't even play. We didn't sound check because it was pouring rain. The crew had to cover up all of the equipment. The venue employees had to cover up all the, the lights and their gear. We played 30 minutes and then Wilco never played. They had to play in their dressing room and do a live Instagram stream <laughs> So that was a little anticlimactic.
0: Weren't you the DP on that, Carrie? Wasn't that being shot for you? I was
1: one of the DPs. Technically, it was actually one of their techs, but um, I was the second camera, B camera. (laughs) Um, And then New York was Hurricane Henry, which dumped a lot of rain. We were in Queens at Flushing Meadows and... Yeah, big rainstorm. We, that's, our set was cut short that night because of lightning. They had to clear everyone out. You would think a town called Flushing Meadows wouldn't have a problem with <laughs> rainfall. I know. I know. you we are
5: on stage and they're like, clear, you know, in your ears, like, clear the stage. And then they do this announcement where they're like, shelter in place. Whoa. <laughs> and fortunately, that stadium has speakeasies built underneath it, bars. Mm-hmm. Under this weird tennis stadium. So, you know, the audience can go down. Uh, fortunately for them, they can go underneath and just drink, which they did while this effing hurricane was just dumping rain. <laughs> and Wilco's like, well, mm-hmm. stopped, you know, because the lightning is really the thing that that clears everything out. You can't play while there's lightning. But rain, sure. So Wilco goes back out and plays during this hurricane and it's just dumping rain on their poor audience. Stands out there in ponchos, you know, almost four thousand people just stay, and the front of house out in the audience gets flooded. Where the soundboard is, Whoa. there were six inches of water, and so the poor mm-hmm. techs are standing in water while operating all of this equipment. It's just <laughs> Very not. safe, really, really. Yeah, safe. I don't think
0: I don't think that met OSHA requirements. I think no, uh,
5: nothing on that tour really did.
2: You know, my band was known for being meteorologically challenged, and every time we played, <laughs> even indoors, there would be like a tsunami or something, and, and, and I got electrocuted so many times. You could have run a model train set off my lips. Did you guys ever get zapped bad? Oh, yes, definitely. so
5: many times.
1: Yeah, I've been shocked so intensely that like I basically just see stars and wow yeah (laughs) definitely in the early days when particularly in Europe you know there's always grounding issues or you would try to sort of configure like oh I'm sure if we just use this adapter that's not up to code and like we can (laughs) plug your American amp into this British plug it just you know it was lots of hijinks like that I it's fortunately been a long time since I've been shocked, but that can really fry your brain. It, it feels pretty intense. It's
5: really one of those things that just makes you angry and people don't yeah. realize it while you're, you know, you're like trying to soundcheck or whatever. And they're like, oops, sorry. You know, and you're like, God, you know, and trying to keep your cool and go on with the show. But it's, it's kind of impossible. And then sometimes they'll just be like, put a sock over it.
1: Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> that, that is sock.
5: the worst. Like we're just gonna put a, like a little muffle here, and, but you're still
1: physically being shocked the entire time. Well, but also then smelling someone's sock.
0: It's,
1: uh. it's very derelict.
0: <laughs> Come on, you two are punk
2: rock, isn't that? That's just like the day to day, right?
0: Yeah. yeah, that's
1: the day to day. That's the dream. That's it. That's
2: living the dream. <laughs> when you're using someone else's mic, ever. It's, it's so gross. Was,
1: when you can smell the breath. Of someone else, like the the mouth smell, the saliva of someone else. I played after John Popper,
2: oh. yeah, from Blues Traveler, and I had to go in his mic, and it smelled like you know, smelled like a grinder,
0: yeah. it smelled yeah. like a grinder. Say, when you're Dang. when you're playing at CBGB, and you know you're smelling Joey Ramone's breath twenty years later or whatever.
3: Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
0: So we already heard your weather report from being on the road with Wilco. Could you share some of the other highlights and even the lowlights of that experience?
5: I would say the highs were very high and the lows were very low, and they often were split second moments next to each other. (laughs) I think getting to do Red Rocks was obviously a career highlight. It's a gorgeous venue built into these very red stones in the walls of this beautiful canyon very famous. Every big rock act of the 70s and 80s has done it. Backstage is up above the main stage. There's this weird little cave. You just take a little stairway up to and it's built into the side of this mountain, this canyon or whatever you want to call it. But it literally is a cave, right? So you open a very heavy door and it's several rooms, cave room here for the crew and then You know, there's a couple of rooms for the band, but it's this long, windy cave where they had to bring our wardrobe cases up here and bring all our stuff back there. And But it was, we were just ecstatic to be there. There's pictures of Stevie Nicks on the wall and talking about Fleetwood Mac being there, every famous person, all of these amazing package shows they had in the 80s. We're like looking at all this before we play. The weather is, for this show, beautiful. It was a gorgeous night, wasn't it, Carrie? Yeah. It really was. It really was. I'm trying to set the stage here. I'm trying to set the scene. <laughs> We're gonna be here. We're gonna be. <laughs> and you know, we all have friends and family there, right? Wait, are we you setting have... up
1: for something to go wrong? Because I feel like it was a good show.
5: No, after the show, remember? No. Oh, all right. Let me tell Let's okay. tell the story. Okay. So we're <laughs> so we play this amazing show. I have friends out in the audience. Our drummer has his entire family there. I don't
1: know where you're going with it. And
5: this. we play this incredibly beautiful show. We're like high on life. But it's still COVID, right? So right after the show, we have to go up to our dressing room, right? We can't be mingling out there. We're like doing very strict protocols, right? So we very obediently go right back from the stage into our dressing room, which I mentioned before is like a cave. And we open that door and all five of us, all six of us in the band are just like, yes, we did it. We played a great show. We walk into that dressing room and someone has taken the biggest dump like oh. epic, and it's oh, the tiniest wow. space. There's no windows. It's inside of a cave. Oh. And so we walk in there, and it's like particulate. It was so gross.
4: disgusting.
5: It was like
1: walking into an outhouse. <laughs> I loved also knowing that who like it had to been someone we knew that was taking that opportunity. While we played to have a private moment.
5: Private Wait, moment.
2: Uh, it, was it in a toilet or was no, it No, no, a... no, no.
1: It was in the toilet, but I'm saying oh. like the
5: whole dressing room was like a tiny tin can inside of a cave.
1: Yes. Yeah, the glamour <laughs> so and was... the squalor, they sit side by side on tour. They really do. <laughs> they really do.
0: That's a great story. <sighs> it's a perfect illustration of what you were describing, Corin.
2: Well, it's interesting how often that comes up because we just interviewed drive-by truckers and they're told an entire story about Jason Isbell having a bowel movement. And having,
0: and having so a guess, fan um, try to talk to him know. through the door.
1: Those yeah. were the worst days of when you played small venues and you didn't have great days to play small venues. But the worst aspect, I should say, was often that there was not a bathroom in the dressing room. Right. So you would be five minutes before you play, you're waiting in a bathroom line meanwhile, the fans are like, why aren't they on stage? It's like, well, I have to wait in this long bathroom line. It's like all of the mystery is just taken away from you at that point. You're like, hey, how's it going? Don't worry, I'm washing my hands. Like, it's just, you're so exposed.
0: That is so classic. The indignities.
5: The indignities. I mean, yeah. Some of our band members, it was their first time doing a bus tour. Ah. And we had the bus driver sit everyone down and be like, no, number two on the bus. You know, and that, that's like, it's pretty astounding that you realize like half of your time on tour is figuring out when that moment is going to happen for you. Gosh, you're really peeling
1: back the curtain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Honestly, I did not expect to be having this conversation with you two. But all levity aside, it is interesting how this topic comes up in various forms. Why
2: would you think we wouldn't have this? Like our last guest was the drummer from OK Go and their dressing room was a broom closet. So he peed in a bucket (laughs) thinking it was just a bucket, but it was actually some marquee letters and he got caught. And now every time he plays, what was the club in Boston? The Paradise in Boston. And so every time he goes, they always put a bucket out by his drums and say, Dan's this bucket. (laughs) For years and years and years, every time. Never live
5: it down. That's what you want to
2: be known for.
0: I also want to hear about your band, your tour manager, your crew, and trying to crank the machine back up. Any Spinal Tap moments in that experience?
5: We had a bus driver who <sighs> admittedly was a bit rusty. Because after COVID, nothing had... Nobody had... Well, the buses themselves were rusty, right? They hadn't been driven. So all kinds of things were going wrong. And one night we were bouncing so hard in our bunks, right? You know, when you go on the road at night, you're trying to sleep, but they're going over construction, the rumble strip, just all this stuff in your bunk, and you're like, what is going on? (laughs) And this one night, we're like actually texting each other, what the F, and Carrie was like, I just (laughs) got air in my bunk. (laughs) And we find out the next day, the bus driver had forgotten to lift the hydraulics on the bus. So we were just like flapping um, around like yeah. cargo, you know, just like a
1: bag of bones in the back of this bus. So unsafe, so unsafe. Not as bad as our bus driver on our last European tour, who might have been like one of COVID's patient zeros. Like oh, he it was, was like February. <laughs> it was literally like February twenty twenty, and we had this like really sick bus driver. We were like, man, that guy sounds terrible. I wonder if there's something going around. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was talking to this friend of mine, and the lead singer in his band got COVID in like March 2020. And I said, do you know how he got it? And he said, yeah, we think he got it from Tom Hanks. Oh, wow. Seriously, the guy had dinner with Tom Hanks like when Tom was sick.
5: I would like to get it from Tom
1: Hanks. It's a better COVID, yeah. (laughs) That's what everyone's... Yeah.
2: With P.J. Harvey, our
0: bus broke down a block from the White House, and we just took the stuff off. We never saw that bus again. People who haven't been on the road can kind of imagine a little bit how disruptive that is. But my experience is you can begin to integrate with the bus, right? It kind of mm-hmm. becomes part of you and it, you become part of it when you're out for a while. That's It's not not easy to move out.
1: No, it's basically your your home. We had people who had
5: never experienced the drop-off before, right, on this tour. And our tour manager, unfortunately, had to leave us a little bit early. He got a better gig what? and Not possible. so we're driving yeah i know and we're driving <laughs> into chicago we've told everyone else on the bus we're getting dropped off here chicago early morning and it's just me and the bus driver sitting up front and he's like oh can you wake everybody up we're almost there you know i'm yelling like get up, everybody <laughs> just using my mom voice and we get near the hotel right but they're like oh well you can't go actually to the hotel because the bus is too big. So we're in the alley behind the hotel. And you can imagine what these people who have been living on a bus, they've never done this before. And they have so much stuff. And the hotel is like, we can't get you to the front, you're going to have to come through the back. The concierge comes out, he's like, Oh, my word, you know, he's like very uptight guy. And we are going through the kitchen with all, like six guitars, all of our stuff, backpacks the drummer is wearing a sombrero and he has a paper bag full of his clothes (laughs) through the kitchen and into the front lobby of this very fancy hotel
0: if that isn't a scene (sighs) out of spinal tap i don't know what is i mean that is that is epic
2: I was in Chicago when your Portlandia partner, Fred Armisen, was playing drums in Trenchmouth. And a friend of mine, actor Eddie Jemison, told me he worked with Fred and D'Arcy from the Smashing Pumpkins at this coffee joint called the Java Jive. And every once in a while, Fred would just drop his tray and run out of the place and chase someone and say, You didn't pay! You didn't pay! (laughs) But there was nobody
4: there.
2: (laughs) Which brings me to my next point. Carrie, you made the transition from music to comedy, and I did the same thing. I was in a band in Chicago. I went through the Second City program and started writing sketch comedy. And I basically had two different personas depending on what I was talking about. And I've noticed the same thing with you. When I see interviews with you about Slater Kinney, you're very serious. But when I see interviews with you about Portlandia, you know, a lot less so.
1: Uh, I guess it depends on the interview and the topic traditionally like our straightforward Slater Kinney interviews are a little more serious like the questions we get asked sometimes are really heavy you know like politics and culture i mean it's not lightweight stuff you know you're sort of reading the room in ter- terms of conversational tone i feel like it's more that than what i'm bringing to it you know if someone's like well there was riots in portland <laughs> when we're talking about like the Slater Kinney record like It's not that funny. (laughs) So uh, yeah, so I think it's, for me, just more contextual. But what I appreciate, I guess, about having both is they kind of do fulfill like the two different sides of me, which don't really feel schizophrenic, feel like a part of the whole. And I like being able to kind of code switch between the two.
0: That long form video that you both did with the path of wellness, right? I mean, there's (laughs) the reenactments and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's some laugh out loud moments in there interspersed with the music. I think that worked in kind of a nice way.
1: Yeah, that was really fun. We kept like the music part of that very earnest, but it was fun to kind of just mess with everything else because there is a silliness that both Corn and I have that obviously Slater-Kinney is an earnest endeavor, but I think outside of the music, you know, we are a little more multifaceted than that. And so it's, it's nice to have an outlet for other things.
2: Okay. I'm going to read you guys a line and you can respond. This is the review for Spinal Tap's album, Intravenous DeMilo. Quote, they're treading water in a sea of retarded sexuality and bad poetry. And then Nigel Tufnell responds, well, that's nitpicking, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Wouldn't you say that review and the response pretty much sum up the toxic masculinity of rock music for its entirety?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to take that one?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, Corin probably does. Yeah.
5: Yeah. (laughs) I love that Spinal Tap is poking fun at all of that. And it's skewering it so well. It's the whole idea of them being like so over inflated with their sexual references, all of it.
1: When when Nigel <laughs> is confusing, sexy and sexist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that is like the crux of it. Yeah. Oh, I thought this was just sexy. It's like, mm, yeah, it's not <laughs> like it's just and I think there is some general misunderstandings about that. Those layers have started to get peeled back and I think one reason it holds up so well is because it's the total deconstruction of it in such a great way. And you can laugh along with stuff that you are like, it's true because it did exist. Still does to some extent, but certainly not as bad as it was.
2: It's amazing to me with all the misogyny and not only that, like the pedophilia in music. Is there like a covenant between groupies and musicians that they don't come out? Why haven't more musicians been held accountable for their actions cuz there certainly is a lot more that's been swept under the rug don't you think Oh
5: for sure I definitely think that there has long been an air of tolerance for sexism in the music industry and I think we're starting to get there but it's still just like taking such a long time but I think finally you know the most egregious offenders are being Taken to task like R. Kelly, you know, I mean that took so long. It took so many people in such legal lengths to to finally cancel that guy. But I think it's going to happen more and more. Sexual assault is being taken more seriously. I do think there's going to be more repercussions in the music industry.
2: Speaking of R. Kelly, back in about 1995, my band The Falling Melendes were mixing a song at a Chicago studio called CRC, and we had the off hours, like we were there from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., but in general, the time was blocked off for R. Kelly, and all night long, we would get calls from females, uh, hello, is Robert there, is Robert there, and, you know, at the time, I thought, wow, this guy is pretty popular, but in retrospect, I'm wondering how old those girls were, and it kind of creeps me out now. Let's talk about parenthood. So I have an eighteen year old daughter, Sunny, and her favorite bands are Slater Kinney, The Breeders, and Saint Vincent.
5: Wow, good taste. Yeah,
2: she's got good taste. And I think she'd like my music more if my lyrics, which I wrote long before I was a dad, weren't so aggressively male. <laughs> Corn, you did a solo album A Thousand Years and you were referred to it as a middle aged mom album. Have you had any problem migrating from being the perhaps solipsistic rock star to being the mom writing lyrics for their kid's generation?
5: Yeah, I've tried to consciously incorporate the perspective of being a mom into a lot of my songs, and I think it's, re- it's a, actually a huge part of who I am and also who I am on stage. It's very maternal to a lot of people. And I think it was always there. So there's so much of that thread through all of my songwriting, really, I think, of feeling that strength and also that frustration of taking care of people all the time and finding space for my own needs and the selfishness and the selflessness, and, and all of that I think is actually a huge thread through my songwriting before I was even an actual mother. And I think some of my better songs are ones where I embrace it, like What's Mine Is Yours. That song, it's, it's a total rock and roll song, but it's it's a very caretaking song. It's kind of about listening to people and telling them how much you love them, and that this mess that we're in whether it's our cultural mess or a family mess, like we're going to get through this together. And people respond so strongly to that song, I think live because they want that connection. That's something that you can do as a singer and as a writer.
2: That's interesting because in my life uh, as a writer, I was having trouble with that transition from the single guy perspective to the married guy, to the family guy. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, maybe I was having trouble with that transition in my life in general because I remember when we were moving from Chicago to Los Angeles and I was driving, it was late at night, we're on Route 66. My wife was asleep in the passenger seat and my baby daughter was asleep in the back. And I remember looking at them and and really, and thinking to myself, I didn't know any of these motherfuckers 10 years ago, you know? (laughs) It really like made that transformation complete. But, you know, going back to my daughter, now that she's old enough, I really want her to appreciate my music, at least
5: half as much as she appreciates
2: yours. Are your kids
5: fans of your music, Corin? I wouldn't say either of them are fans, but I think that it's interesting. They definitely have different reactions to seeing me perform. And my son was mortified. He was absolutely mortified. Like when we got back together in 2015, and he was like 14 at the time. He literally would turn around when we performed or did a sound check. Like he was uh. just like, "I cannot watch this," you know, especially if mommy was acting kind of sexy on stage. He was just like, <laughs> Ugh, <laughs> Ugh, you know. Just you we're being so... sexist,
0: right? We know that now. Yeah, we're on that. right. Sexy, exactly. Not sexist.
5: Yeah, but my daughter is really different. She is way more open to it and wants to hang out. Wants to come to the shows and will watch a little bit you know not not a whole set it's fair it's fair it's interesting she's a little bit more open to it i would say but not fans no that's just not going to happen <laughs>
2: no this made me feel a little better um in an interview with new york times bruce springsteen admitted that his children haven't exactly dived into his back catalog <laughs> quote We had our kids late. I was 40 when our first son was born. And they showed a healthy disinterest in our work over these years. They had their own musical heroes. They had their own music they were interested in. They'd be pretty blank-faced if someone mentioned a song title of mine.
1: (laughs) That makes me feel better, too, just in general. But I feel like that is the natural progression of things. Like, you have to kind of reject what your parents are doing. But it
2: hurts. (sighs) It hurts. We're still humans.
1: Well, I will say, Marshall couldn't look at Corin, but would be like, Carrie, great show. <laughs> like, like,
5: <laughs> <I> totally would. <win.
3: laughs>
1: so I'm
2: wondering, do parents ever treat you differently when they find out that you're a rock star?
5: I think there are those moments and it usually it's like about 10 seconds before we're doing a fundraiser. Like it's literally <laughs> like, oh my God, I know you're ba- Oh, the you know, the school fundraiser. That's amazing. And, it, and and then, but no, no, the thing is, is they're like, wait a minute, you're in a band with Carrie Brownstein? Oh my God. And the amount of Portlandia swag that I had to commandeer for the fundraising, it was epic.
0: That's hilarious.
5: Carrie, of course, was always very gracious about it.
1: Signed posters. <laughs> what if I wasn't? That would be so weird.
0: <laughs> you know, I used to work for TED Talks. So I tried to bring TED swag for these fundraisers. No one gave a shit.
1: (laughs) Really? I feel like people love that
0: stuff. They love it for free. They don't want to pay for TED stuff. Oh, right, right. Gotcha.
2: But we had a very typical (laughs) L.A. fundraiser where the guest stars were slash – and Slash's wife, who was very boozy, came up there drunk and was like, come on, I'll even give you a kiss. And then wow. all, of a all, the, all the bidding stopped immediately. And then the musical guest was the Pussycat Dolls. This is for a preschool fundraiser.
3: <laughs> I love it.
0: I wanted to try something that we haven't tried before. This is going to be a round robin thing where I say the name of a club and each of us will tell a one sentence spinal tap moment that happened there. Okay. The 930 Club.
1: I mean, Washington, D.C., do you remember any crazy stories from there? I. Aside from just eating those cupcakes? Those cupcakes.
5: Oh my God. Those cupcakes, cupcakes. They're addictive. Sarah. I feel like I've eaten more than one.
1: Oh, that's where I had laryngitis and I had to have a, a doctor shoot me up oh. with prednisone in the ass right before I played. <laughs> yes. That's pretty spinal tap. <laughs> that was. That's the only time was, I felt like, oh my God, there's a doctor with a needle and he's asked me to pull down my pants. This feels very rock and roll. It did help me sing. oh dear
5: well here's a story about the 930 club that was on a tour where believe it or not Lizzo opened up for us
0: (laughs) oh my goodness how cool
5: yeah Lizzo was there backstage and I remember looking over and she was getting very cozy with our manager at the time and we were like
1: what is happening not like in a weird I think she's just so charming
5: she's very charming
1: it, it was, was more it about was our funny. manager being like, "I'm in love," than <laughs> yeah, uh, doing it
0: for sure. Funny. Well, those are two good ones. At the old nine thirty, I remember being with a band that didn't get a lot of love. The, the bands that got a lot of love got to go eat at the Hard Rock around the corner. The bands that didn't get love had a frozen pizza in the dressing room, and I remember sitting in that dressing room eating my slice of, of frozen pizza and seeing a rat crawl across the HVAC pipe or whatever it was in the dressing room. So that's that's mine. Okay, next one, CBGB. <laughs>
1: Well, Corinne and I, in in such an amateur move, you know, lots of shows at CBGBs are late. We were on at like 11 and we thought, let's go to the top of the Empire State's building before we play. (laughs) (laughs) We got, I think we loaded our stuff in. We were like, let's do it. And we did it.
5: I still have the ticket. We went to the Empire State building. Went to the top, came back down, and played a rock show. Not bad.
1: That's
0: pretty cool. The ultimate tourist experience (laughs) in New York City. That's awesome. Mine is that when Radiohead played there, Creep was huge on MTV. They put it at number five in the set because they didn't want it to be like the big show ender or whatever. After they played Creep, Tom said, okay, now the MTV crowd can leave.
1: (laughs) Did they? Classic. That's such a 90s move. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. 40 watt.
5: Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Well- 40 Watt in Athens. I mean, mostly I just remember hanging out with Vanessa from Pylon at that cool record store next door to it. And also, yeah, yeah, yo I stuff. I found the, the Raincoats record that before it was reissued widely, finally found that Raincoats album. I have a good story at
5: <laughs> 40 Watt.
1: Um what
5: is it? <laughs> I don't think I can tell it. I can't tell it. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks for that. So
2: do you want to do the outro, Alan? Yeah. Where can your fans find your stuff, find out what's happening, your social media, whatever you want to promote or whatever you want to, how you connect with them. Your fans
0: know this. Our listeners. Where can our listeners find all 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 those?
5: So our website, slaterkinney.com. Obviously, the Slater Kinney Instagram. We try and and keep
1: that updated. That's definitely the one that we do personally. Is, yeah, is Instagram.
5: We have announcements about what's upcoming. We're you know we're doing a couple shows this fall, yeah,
1: or you can just come to our houses. You ask where to find us. We're usually at home. <laughs> um,
5: what about your movie?
1: I believe the Nowhere In is now available to stream on uh, all the usual streaming outlets, Disney Plus. Yes, it's all the usual outlets, but mostly Disney Plus and <laughs> select theaters. So thank you so
2: much for your time, for your generosity, for your insight. We really appreciate it. Yeah.
1: Thanks for having us. It was a lot yeah, of fun.
2: Yeah, and Carrie, thanks so much. So much fun.
1: All right, take care, right, guys. Bye. bye. Bye.
2: Alex, I just love the story about Slater-Kinney's gig at Red Rocks and how Carrie and Corinne remembered it differently. Carrie recalled a beautiful night that went off without a hitch, and then Corin reminded her of the stink bomb waiting for them in their dressing room. <laughs> it would be like Mick going, Keith, was the out a great show? And Keith going, except for the
4: Hills Angels part.
0: <laughs> was that your British accent? British? I thought the Stones were German. Oh, boy. Oh, shit. You know, it goes to show you, that even a band with a stature of Slater Kinney knows that the bread of glory is often smaller than the cold cut of squalor, but it still makes a damn tasty sandwich.
2: Alex, I think you just made a second saying for our dry wall of fame. Congratulations.
0: Wow. Well, in my acceptance speech, I want to thank God. I want to thank my parents, my wife, my children, you, Alan. Our producer, Gretchen, the Rolling Stones. You know, the truth is that when an on-call rock and roll doctor, also known as a rock doc, is giving you a shot in the ass before you go on stage to perform, that's all the evidence you need that you've reached the pinnacle of glamour and the depths of squalor. Thanks to Corin and Kerry for reminding us that these two opposing states of being are constant bedfellows when you're on the road and living the dream. With that in mind, it just makes sense that this week we're recommending you listen to the song Hellhole, the Spinal Tap classic from the notorious album Smell the Glove. Maybe they could have called it Smells Like Hell, but who are we to question a great art? Find it on your favorite music streaming service. This episode is edited by Gretchen Kilby. Music by jk harrison please follow rate and review too much effing perspective on apple podcasts you can also find us on spotify stitcher iheart or wherever you listen to podcasts we're on instagram facebook and twitter at tmep show and our website is tmepshow.com
2: although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers This podcast is not affiliated with This is Final Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. This is Alan Keller. On behalf of my co-host Alex Hoffman and myself, thanks for listening. We're going to close the show with a song called Growing Old, written and performed by one of Slater Kinney's biggest fans, my own Riot Girl and daughter, Sunny Ray Keller. See you next time on two Much Happy Perspective.
3: I bring a lighter with me everywhere I go, but what the hell's the point? If I don't even smoke, my lips are dry from the way you kiss me. I was run away from home, but I'm not willing to throw away my phone. Is a cliche? I always feel this way. All of the songs are about being 17. I guess the light isn't as interesting. The jumping and cry off my parents cooking wine. snapshot of Te
4: for a head-bangingly good time dive into the world of heavy metal with the brutally delicious podcast here we don't just talk music we welcome you into our heavy metal family join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars we go beyond the typical interviews exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal so whether you're a die-hard metal head or just curious join our family and let the headbanging begin with the brutally delicious podcast <laughs> Evergreen Podcast Network.